Okay, my name is Bethany, and I'm a grateful recovering addict here in Portland, Oregon, District 11. Um, I do also kind of consider myself part of the phone fellowship um, because about I've been calling into these meetings for about a year and a half, um, and they have just saved my ass so many times, whether I'm on vacation or just feeling crazy. It's just a miracle to be able to call in. You know, I, I don't, I, it's, it's rare that I make it to the 7 a.m. meeting because that's 4 a.m. <laughs> Pacific Standard Time. But, um, you know, every now and then I have a couple sleep disorders. And every now and then if I wake up in the middle of the night, I used to smoke to, you know, pass the time. And now I can call into a meeting, which is great. So um, take what you like, leave the rest. I'm going to talk a little bit about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um Growing up, this morning on the phone fellowship, we were talking about um, what in our uh, early what in our early life experiences led to our using. I have a lot of people who have they're called adverse childhood experiences um, or ACEs. There have been studies done that people who have a large number of ACEs in their life tend to end up having issues with um, addiction of some sort. And the ACEs, I have them in front of me, there's 10. One is physical abuse, two is sexual abuse, three is emotional abuse, four is physical neglect, five is, it says intimate partner violence, six is having a mother treated violently, seven is substance misuse within the household, eight is household mental illness, Nine is parental separation or divorce, and ten is in having an incarcerated household member. And I've read summaries on the um, this study multiple times, and I am here to tell you that I have absolutely zero aces in my life. I grew up with a really loving family. Um, really uh, suburbs of Portland, um, small town, you know, loving, loving parents, loving, no divorce, like I had my grandparents around, all kinds of stuff. When I was a kid, I did experience um, some anxiety. Uh, when I was 11, I had stomach ulcers. I became a people pleaser and a perfectionist early on. And um, as in adolescence, I um, dealt, and to this day, dealt with depression, which um, comes from my dad's side. I've got mental illness on both sides of my parents, uh, or both both sides of the family. So um, I later would find out that I am dual diagnosis, which means you have um, mental health issues as well as addiction issues. Um, so my story of using it really um, comes in a little later than the average Joe, I guess. I, um, when I was in college, I had, uh, I developed general anxiety disorder. And I also, ha I have been an insomniac since I was a kid. I would later find out that I had a second sleep disorder. And I don't remember the first time I ever smoked pot. I, I have a ballpark idea but I don't know what I was doing wrong, but I don't know if it was like inhaling wrong or not holding it in long enough, but like for years, it just didn't work on me. 
And I would have roommates that would smoke it, and they would be like, oh, we're going to hot box you. We're going to give you a whole bong to yourself. And I was like, guys, you're just wasting it. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. Um, And I don't know why, but um, it didn't work. Um, And so they kept bugging me, and every now and then I would try it. And I I didn't have anything against it. It just didn't seem to work. Um, But I I I realized that I was starting to have some sort of effect right around the summer of 2005 when I was like 22. And I happened to go on a study abroad um, at that time. And I can remember studying abroad in Mexico thinking, man, it would be so nice to smoke right now. Um, and so I bought a pack of cigarettes because I have, have a lot of cross addiction issues. Um and I came back from uh, my study abroad and decided that, you know, I've been t- my, my doctor's been giving me this Ambien and this weird sleep medication that I don't like being on. And everybody's telling me that if you smoke pot, it'll help you sleep. So I thought, I'm going to give it a try. So for the, during the fall of 2005, I smoked pot to cope with my sleeping issues. And it worked for the first time ever um, since I can remember. I slept regularly, maybe not um, as long, but it was like it wasn't, you know, induced by a a pharmaceutical drug. But, I mean, it was induced by pot. Um, And I slept um, up until around December. And um, I started – I had a – I, I deal with major depressive disorder. It is severe. It is reoccurring. It is without psychotic features, which is fantastic. Um, but it, um, every few years, the medication I'm on just stops working, and I have to get on a different antidepressant. So we didn't know I had major depressive disorder because I hadn't had enough relapses in depression to know that it was reoccurring, yada, yada, yada. So I had my, uh, it was only my second relapse in depression um, in December of 2006. And it's very possible that pot caused that relapse because later on when I was in the hospital, I would learn that pot can be both a stimulant and a depressant. But um, I like a good girl ended up telling my parents because for the longest time I felt like I had to tell my parents everything um and they believe that pot is evil and horrible and a gateway drug which it was for me to alcohol but never to anything else um and so I told them out I told them and they had a cow and they practiced uh, what they called tough love, and they said, you know, if you don't stop smoking pot and agree to never do any drugs again, and if, at the time I was dating a guy that I'd been dating since high school, and they thought he was my dealer, which was kind of funny because he's he was one of the, you know, most spineless people I ever knew. And he, they said, you know, if you don't break up with him because we were convinced he's your dealer, um, then we're going to, you know, pull all financial um, – support from you. And I was in college at the time. My sister was a social worker. I have three older sisters. And um, so I started doing a little research on like, well, you know, how easy is it to get insurance and how, you know, and I start, and I questioned it, but 
Um, I ended, uh, my boyfriend broke up with me because, you know, my parents called him a drug dealer. And uh, I, I really was like, you know, I, it seemed kind of hard to get insurance. And, uh, like, I really required to get through college. I really had to focus. I had to give a, a lot of energy. Um, and uh, I didn't want to worry about money. So I was like, whatever. I'll just agree to this. And so I didn't smoke for six months to a year. I don't remember exactly. And my parents, our relationship was just not in a good place for a really long time. And um, we had to heal from that. But it was also one of the best things that probably ever happened to me because I probably would have married that guy and been divorced with kids at this time um, if that had happened because um, he was the only guy I'd ever dated. Um, but shortly after that, um, about six months to a year later, I kind of had this realization and I was like, dude, my parents aren't the CIA. They don't have a chip in me. Like if I smoke, they're not going to know. So I smoked And I think that was one of the only times I was a one hit wonder. And, um, from age 22 to 23, I smoked pretty much on a daily basis until I was 29. And the only time I would quit was when I had family vacations. We had to fly places where I couldn't get it. Or uh, my best friend lived in New York during my 20s. And I would go visit her. And um, I couldn't, I couldn't, it wasn't legal there yet. So, um, yeah, I just kind of spent my 20s smoking away any bad feeling I felt, any time I was depressed, I would smoke, any time I was anxious, I would smoke, and um, I also picked up cigarettes around age 23 um, to deal with general anxiety disorder, and I hated the smell of cigarettes. But I thought, you know, if I smoke a cigarette every time I smoke pot, then maybe people will smell the cigarettes and not the pot on me. <laughs> when in reality, I would just smell like both. Um, so I used, because I had some social anxiety, and um, I used to just wake up in the morning with abs- just an absolute terror about the day. And so I made it my goal just, I would wake up and my goal was just to get to the bong and to not have a thought before getting to the bong. And I would smoke in my basement with my cat, and then by the, then I would be like, okay, eat breakfast. Okay, have some coffee and smoke some cigarettes. Okay, now get in the car and go to work. And by the time I did that for five years, it stopped really doing much. Um, and so uh, I started... I got a job um, working with kids with special needs for um, uh, the school district here in Portland. And the reason I got that job was because I knew somebody who had gotten that job and they said they didn't drug test. So I was like, fantastic. That's what I'm going to do. So I started this job and um, I worked with, I was just kind of like working in classrooms, not really working one-on-one with just one kid. And um, in December of 2000, no, fall of 2012, I started working with this 
um, little boy who was emotionally disturbed. And I had never worked with um, any emotionally disturbed kids before. And he had a lot of acting out behaviors, and I started getting really scared that if I didn't keep my eyes on him, he was going to, like, stab me with the scissors or something like that. And I was in the midst of developing some PTSD. And I started to have these weird thoughts, which later I was told were um, passive suicidal ideation, which it means you are thinking about, like, what if I didn't exist? Or what if I could just sleep forever? Or um, you you don't have an active plan of here's how I want to end my life, but maybe it would be great if I just was never born. And so on my 29th birthday, which is October 4th, um, I went and I told my parents that I was having um, some issues and thinking, I wasn't really thinking about hurting myself, but my family is very, very like paranoid about suicide because my grandfather and most of his siblings committed suicide. Um, so I, you know, the moment I said, you know, I, I wish I wasn't alive, they were like, we're taking you to the hospital. <laughs> so I went and I checked myself into um, uh, this great hospital in, um, outside of Portland. And um, I spent the night in the ER. They have this special section that is for um, people who are trying to decide if they want to do an inpatient program or an outpatient program. And at the time, I had been through a lot of therapy, and they said, you know, an inpatient program is probably going to be pretty basic, and the outpatient program will probably benefit you more. And I said, okay, so they sent me home. And that's when I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder, PTSD, um, and dual diagnosis. And they asked me during the duration of this uh, program to quit drinking and uh, to quit smoking pot. And in my mind, I felt like only like college kids smoke pot, and at least in my experience. And like I was, I had just turned 29. I'm coming up on being 30, and I was like, I need to just be done with it. And this is a great opportunity to quit. So I said, sure, yeah, I'll quit. Uh, and at the time, um, drinking was, I mean, I certainly drank a few in college at times and made an idiot of myself, but, like, it was never a regular thing. And um, so anyway, they said, um, they said, you'll be here for about two weeks, and I ended up being there seven weeks. The longest you're supposed to be um, in the program is six weeks. And they said, you have to go to this dual diagnosis group that happens after hours in the evening and uh, once a week. And I said, okay. So I went and I walked into the room and there was this woman standing by a whiteboard that said, what is your substance of choice? What is your sobriety date? Which I didn't know what a sobriety date was. Um, and what's the thought that keeps you stuck in your using? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in one of those meetings, like in the movies. And I sobbed while I told my story. And this woman was very loving but very firm. And she had this great advice to go to a meeting of your gender, to expect to be nervous, to get there early so you can find a parking spot and figure out where you want to sit, and I was such a people pleaser. I was like, I'm going to go to a meeting and come back and tell her. 
And she, I mean, that's what she told us to do. She was like, go to a meeting and come back and tell me about it next week. So um, Portland has a women's meeting on Tuesday nights. We are the Smokeless Sisters. And I went to my first meeting on October 23rd of 2012. And I got there like a half an hour early, which is funny because a lot of stoners get to meetings late, which I didn't, I had to, I'm really punctual. So I had to learn to not get there half an hour early. And so I walked in and there's somebody was actually there. This person who was secretary meeting was there. And she said, um, Hey, my name's so-and-so what brought you here? And I said, well, I'm in this program and yada, yada, yada. And she said, um, this was, this was, um, October. And she said, um, I was in that exact program nine months ago and I had that same facilitator. And I was like, what? That's crazy shit. Um, and I, I was very religious in high school and then kind of became agnostic during my twenties, but I never really believed that things, um, I always believed that things happen for a reason and I didn't believe in coincidences. I always thought there was something bigger than me out there. So I was like, Hmm, interesting. So, uh, let's see here. I wasn't really sure if I was addicted or not, but I knew like I was doing it way too much. So, I got a sponsor, and she said to me, I am very hard on my sponsees. But the only thing that she ever said to me was to be nice to myself because I used to beat the crap out of myself. Um, She taught me about self-care, and I got a service position and stayed kind of in the center of the pack. And anytime I saw someone or heard somebody who had what I wanted, I would just gravitate toward them. So I worked through uh, steps one through four, um, but my sponsor ended up leaving the program, even though she had like 10 years, um, she went out. And so I did step five with my therapist. And after about two years, I got kind of complacent. And I was only doing about one meeting a week. And we hosted the MA convention in 2015. And it was over Valentine's Day or President's Day weekend. And I went to the convention and I was really struggling with like thinking, you know, do I really have a problem? People are talking about smoking and not getting high. People are talking about, you know, just I was comparing my story, which you sh- is something that you really should not do, you know. Um, um, so I got... I was I I uh I talked to somebody else in the program who had some time and she said, "You know, some of us need to go and do more research," which was code for relapse. And I was like, "Hmm, this is very bizarre that somebody is telling me this in the program." But, you know, at the time she was a cigarette smoker and she said, "I'm not really convinced I have a problem with cigarettes. I'm still de- doing research." So I had tried to quit smoking cigarettes in 2013, and this was 2015, and I pot was not legal yet. So I, my inner addict was like, you know what? There's these potheads out front, and they are smoking cigarettes, and none of them will give a shit if I have one. So I went, and I bummed a cigarette, and then I bummed another one. And then before I knew it, I was like, on a with a group who took a tour of a coffee house which I also I had to quit coffee because I would smoke cigarettes and coffee and so I relapsed on coffee and I bought a pack and came back to uh, the hotel where the convention was and gave the pack of cigarettes 
to the person who told me to do research and like went home and felt like shit. So um, that was in January. And in, I think July of 2015, it was legalized in Oregon. And by December, I had gotten my three-year chip, but I had something come up in my life that I got kind of the fuckets about. And so I called up my girlfriend from college and said, dude, like, what's the big deal? Like, and she was like, hey, why don't you come over to my house? And, you know, if you, she, she was never really like, you should smoke pot, you should not. She just wanted me to take care of myself and do what I needed. And I love her dearly. And she's still in my life today um, in a sober way because she supports me. Um, but she she said to me, the thing you got to do is you got to come over here and we got to go to a store and you got to see how you're not a criminal. And I was like, oh, because for the longest time I carried this shame. You know, I have three older sisters and three brother-in-laws and one of them worked for the DEA and had, you know, taught classes about marijuana. I'm not sure the man ever smoked it. Um, but I had a lot, a lot, a lot of shame. And so I went over to her house. We went to a pot shop. The pot shop, it was December of 2015. The pot shop happened to be selling Christmas trees too. It was bizarre. It was probably the worst thing I could have done because it was just like a candy store. I was a kid in a candy store. Um, but I it, it kind of wigged me out. So I said, you know, no, you know, I, I bought some or no, I can't remember. Um, she bought some, we went back and smoked it. And I was like, you know, no, I've been doing this recovery thing. And I gave it, and I said, I don't want it. I don't want it. And I left. Um, and then um, shortly after that, I was like, Hey, do you have a piece I could borrow? And so I borrowed her pipe and um, then I started buying it. And she told me, Hey, have you ever heard of this CBD pot? And I was like, CB what? Huh? Um, and she said, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so who don't like smoking pot really found that they like smoking CBD pot. And I um, get stomach aches from anxiety and found that CBD pot was great for my anxiety. So I thought, oh, that's, I'll just use it only for that. So between um, December of 2015 and April of 2016, I would smoke on and off. I played lots and lots of games. Oh, I'll only smoke other people's. But I was able, like, oh, I remember uh, spring break of that year. I was like, you know, I think I'm not going to smoke over spring break. And so I just went to two meetings a day and was able to not smoke by doing that. Um, so I think there's there's a fine line. I, I didn't feel comfortable saying, hi, I'm a marijuana addict. I felt like that was strong language and you got to be really careful with, you know, when you say I am and you, then you fill in that blank, you got to be careful with what you put there because it can be a self, um, self-fulfilling prophecy. So I always identified as just a pothead because I was a pothead. Um, but suddenly like the whole, I started remembering like, oh, I was smoking and couldn't stop. I was smoking and not getting high. And that was starting to happen for me. And I had a friend in the fellowship who had relapsed who said, have you thought of doing 90 meetings in 90 days? And I was like, oh, that means going to AA. And AA is so hardcore. Like, 
and people are so much more relaxed in MA, and she's like, yeah, but you're really going to feel for the program, and, you know, you get lots of support, and, you know, you can't seem to quit, so you might want to try it, and I was like, okay, so I, I did it, and I uh, finished in 83 days. I did my 90 meetings in 83 days, and I was able to not use at that time, um, but I didn't realize that you had to keep going to meetings to stay sober, and I relapsed. And in from August of 2016 to December of 2016, I truly feel like I crossed the line. Um, in AA, the big book talks about, like, we are um, pickles and we can't go back to being cucumbers. Um, a few weeks ago, I was a mess. Um, on at this meeting and asking questions after the meeting um, about like I, I keep having this addict thought of maybe I can use like a normal person because I'm 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 coming up on two years since my relapse and I feel like I'm far enough away that I can use again and they said you know think of yourself as hummus and you can't go back to being a garbanzo bean and I was like yes and then they said that's an addict thought and you're an addict. So don't beat yourself up for having addict thoughts because of who you are. And I was like, okay, I got, I got some acceptance to do. Um, and um, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I'm going to go back to um, when I was using in um, August through December, I developed a drinking program problem and suddenly all of those stories I heard in AA were happening to me and I was blacking out and having trouble remembering how I got home. I was hanging out with really skeezy people. I was being taken advantage of. I was um, like, you know, doing all kinds of risky behavior and we had a really, really crazy winter that year. And the first ice and snowstorm, I was with somebody who actually was in recovery herself or something else. We were at a guy's house smoking and drinking um, on the opposite side of town, and an ice storm happened. And I, so I left the house, and I was going to try to get an Uber, but I am not a technological person, and I never used Uber, so I couldn't figure it out. So I thought I would walk across Portland. Like I had like 10 miles to get home. And I was like, I'm just going to walk because I was super drunk and high. And I prayed that I, that some good Samaritan would pick me up and take me home. And that happened, which scares the shit out of me because I got in a car with a stranger and didn't die. Um, it was a nice old man who was like, honey, you look like you need a ride and, um, had four wheel drive. And I thought it was an answer to prayer. Um, but I, and it was my higher power looking out for me, but it's also really scary to think that I got into a car with a stranger in an ice storm. So that night I broke my foot and I still didn't get sober. Um, I was house sitting after that for a somebody that I had met in the program who was no longer practicing the program and I was using in house sitting and the last night of house sitting it was um December 17th I think I got a wild hair up my ass that I wanted some tequila so I went out and I got a bottle of tequila and I drank half of that bottle of tequila by myself and the next day 
I woke up with no side effects and it was time to pack up and go home. And so I packed up and went home and brought that other half a bottle of tequila with me. So I go home and it's December 18th and I have a family friend who has given me a call and wants to bring me a Christmas tree, a little tiny Christmas tree. And I said, oh, sure. And he's on his way over. And I think to myself, um, how much can I drink and how much should I not drink so that I feel it the moment he leaves and he doesn't notice that, I'm, that I've drank? So um, I had like three slices of a lime left or something. And so I, I, I remember taking like three shots and then putting away the tequila and, you know, saying hello and getting the Christmas tree and, you know, shooing him out. And then after that, I have no memory of what happened until 6 a.m. the following morning. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night in my pajamas and I didn't. I, w- I was really confused, and I take medication for depression, anxiety, and sleep um, disorders, and so I looked at my nightside table, and I saw my pill organizer, and I saw that I hadn't taken my sleep meds for that night, and I was like, oh, if I don't take my sleep meds and sleep, I'm probably going to be a crazy person tomorrow, so I checked my sleep meds at 6 a.m., and I slept until like 11 on December 19th. And my best friend and her current husband were engaged at that time and visiting Portland. And we were supposed to meet up around 11 o'clock. And she couldn't get a hold of me because I had left my phone in the car and my voicemail was full. And many people I know have full voicemails. A lot of people don't listen to their voicemails anymore. And so for me, I just text them and say, hey, call me back. But my best friend is really connected to my family, and so my family started calling me, and nobody could get a hold of me. So they sent the sister that lived closest to me to uh, come check on me. I answered the door in my pajamas and was like, what are you doing here? And she was, like, terrified. She was so scared. The whole family was worried about me. And I was like, oh, I just woke up. And, like, five minutes before she got there, Uh, my landlord was like, hey, a neighbor boy found your wallet in a puddle out front. Here it is. And it was soaking wet. And I was like, oh, my God. And lots and lots of dumb stuff like that was happening to me because I was losing my phone and, like, all kinds of stupid stuff was happening um, because of my using. And uh, so my sister's like, "Uh, your wallet's soaking wet? Well, let let me help you. Like, do you have a hair dryer? And then... She just kind of stopped and was like, okay, level with me. What is going on? Are you doing drugs? What, are you drinking? And at that time, I had already set up an appointment to go back to the inpatient pro- outpatient program because I was having issues and I was like, I had basically drunk myself into another depression. And so I thought, oh, I will um, do the outpatient program again. So I... Um, she said, have you been drinking? And I, I didn't know for sure, but I looked in my recycling bin and that bottle of tequila was in there and it was empty. So I assume that I drank the rest of it. I don't know, but I assume. And she said, I want you to come home with me. And I was like, Ugh, can't you leave so I can smoke and then I'll go home with you? But 
I went home with her and she said, why don't you come live with us? And I was like, oh my God, if I live with you, I'd have to stay sober. And um, that was like the biggest gift anybody ever, ever gave me. Um, I just got to a point where I had to have my living situation contingent upon my sobriety. And on December 20th, I went to the ER again, and this time I did the inpatient program. I spent six days in the inpatient program. I spent Christmas in the psych ward. It was amazing. It was exactly what I needed. And um, I felt like I belonged for the first time on Christmas in a really long time. All of my older sisters were married with 2.3 kids in the suburbs by age 30. And here I was 33 and, you know, haven't had a long-term relationship in forever. And so um, I graduated to the outpatient program and was done in two weeks. And I did like five meetings a week um, up until like April or May. And I don't suggest this, but I did start dating um, in my first year. I felt like, oh, the first time I got sober, I didn't date in my in the first year of recovery. So I, I don't have to follow that rule now. Um, I was really comparing myself to all my friends that were buying houses and having babies and stuff like that. Um, and I don't recommend it, but I did meet my sweetheart. Um, and the stuff that I handle sober now confounds me. This program is doing for me what I could not do alone. Um, after Thanksgiving um, this year, I started having that addict thought again, and maybe I can use again. And so I'm in the middle of doing 30 meetings in 30 days because 90 is too many to think about. Um, this is my 16th meeting. I want to thank all of you for being here because I can't do this program alone.